Welcome aboard! We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime! Ready when you are, CB! Action! Welcome to Monoreal Radio episode number nine. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are so sorry that we're uh, that we're coming to you late tonight, but we decided to stay up and watch the Yankee game, which as it turns out was a waste of time. Yeah, that wasn't worth it at all. I mean, for those of you who are listeners in New England, congratulations. I hope you lose in the next round, but congratulations <laughs> to you. At this rate, I'm kind of just rooting for anybody that's not Boston. Yeah. Um, but with all that being said, we are back and we're ready to continue our Halloween marathon. I'm having a good time with this. Yeah. Last week was fun. Yeah. So this week we're going to go ahead and talk about the Nightmare Before Christmas. But we, before we talk about Nightmare, I think that we do have to talk about our, as you had mentioned to me before we came on, love-hate relationship with Tim Burton. Yeah. I love his early stuff. I love Pee-wee. I love Beetlejuice. I love Edward Scissorhands. But in later years, man, I don't know. I, I feel like for me personally, like I'm just kind of like over his shtick. I, I feel like he's done it so many times. And after a while, all of these movies kind of just look and feel the same. Well, it's interesting that you say that. My love-hate relationship began a couple of years ago before the Alice in Wonderland debacle. Um, I read his book. It was, he didn't write it. It's a book called Burton on Burton and someone interviewed him and they basically transcribed the interviews and published them. And what was interesting to me is that he was asking, the the interviewer called his style Burton-esque and I think that's a fair assessment of his body of work. It, it is a signature style of his. And with every response that I read, Burton was just so glib about everything. I don't think that he was trying to do like the fake humble thing. He was saying that he really never intended for his style to be so cohesive throughout all of his movies. But we've seen the same themes. We've seen the windmills in almost every movie. We've seen the, you know, jaggedy dead tree with the branches. Whenever he does blood or any, like, bodily fluids splurting out, it's, like, highly stylized. You know, you see these common threads in and everything, everything. And everything is so dark and gray, and the buildings are almost V-shaped. Sure, but, but, but he doesn't have a style. Yeah, he swears he doesn't have a style. I swear he's full of you-know-what. Well, that's kind of what I thought. But I read this book years and years ago. And I did kind of change my mind a little bit. When we had gone, um, they had an exhibit at um, the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. And it was all of Burton's stuff. It was a whole bunch of props from the movies. It was Jack Skellington specifically we got to go see. You know, they had about 35 different Jack Skellington heads, all with different facial expressions. They looked like cake pops sitting in this little case. Right. Now, they had 400 of them in total. Yeah, there were a ton of them. But we saw 35. Yeah. Um, Along with 
you know, a bunch of his other stuff. There were props from Beetlejuice. There was the Headless Horseman's costume from Sleepy Hollow. There was uh, the Batman stuff. I mean, it was everything as a Burton fan that you'd want to see. But what was interesting to me, and this is what really kind of changed my mind, was that he had a whole bunch of drawings and sketches from his childhood. And a lot of them we've come to see in his later films, like what he was drawing early on as a child, he either repurposed or, or it just stayed with him enough where you see it come out in his later work. And it kind of changed my mind a little bit and had me thinking that maybe he really didn't do any of this intentionally. Maybe he's just being creative and drawing and putting out this work and figuring out a way to use it. I mean, maybe, but, but they all look the same. I mean, you can't you can't tell me that you use the same kind of tree, the same kind of, uh, you know, color palette for most of your films. The, a lot of similar actors, mm. you know, that, you know, work well with you. Obviously, he didn't write the book on that, but I, mo- so many of his movies just seem exactly the same. It's like the first Batman movie with the exception of maybe the balloons and maybe some of the outfits, feels nothing like the rest of his movies. Gotham City is very dark to begin with, so maybe his style gets lost a bit. But that and Pee-wee and even like Big Fish, very different. But then you watch Beetlejuice, this, um, Sleepy Hollow, Edward Scissorhands, The Corpse Bride, they're all very much the same thing. I think they're similar, but I think if we were to sit here and really pick them apart, we would find a lot of differences. But what's what's interesting to me, he is a pretty interesting guy. He grew up in Burbank, I believe, and uh, he was just a bored kid. And that's where this comes from, all the sketching and the drawing. And that's where, you know, in films, it, it's interesting that you bring up Edward Scissorhands. Like, that's where you really see it, is that you've got this very cookie-cutter neighborhood where everything looks the same, and then when Edward comes to town, he shakes things up. And I think that's a big common theme throughout most of his films. Um, But, you know, whether he intends to follow this one style or not, and whether he'll admit it or not, I got to respect the guy because he plays by his own rules. He does do what he wants. I mean... He was a Disney animator. Yeah, he was eventually fired because they felt that he was just a little too out there for them. And he didn't want to fit the mold. And I mean, that's something as much as I love Disney and Disney comes first. Like, I do have to respect that he did kind of turn his back on Hollywood in that regard. Right. Um, If you really want to see something cool, though, we have talked about this movie before, the Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary. They do have old footage of Burton in the animator studio, which is why. I mean, he looks the same with the hair, the crazy hair and that, you know, kind of sleepy, tired look about him. Uh, But it's still cool to see nonetheless. And even in those days, this film was in development and the film clearly uh, we're talking about is The Nightmare before Christmas. The movie opens on Halloween. We're in Halloween Town. We get introduced to the village that really, the the premise of this movie is that each holiday has its own town. 
and that town is solely dedicated to the one day a year that they get to celebrate these holidays. Uh, we'll talk about how we know that in just a moment, but we open up in Halloween. Uh, great opening number. This is Halloween introduces us to not only the town, but the characters more specifically Jack Skellington, who is the pumpkin King. And he more or less heads up Halloween every year, uh, the big ceremony. So after they put on their little song and dance, Jack walks off after getting congratulated and he gets his pat on the backs, but you can tell that Jack is just not happy. And he and his dog zero walk off into the woods overnight and that's where Jack finds uh, the doors that lead to these other holidays. You see one for St. Patrick's Day. I believe you see one for Thanksgiving. You definitely see one for Easter. And then Jack is drawn in by a Christmas tree. And he opens it up and he gets sucked in and falls into Christmas Town. And that's where he sees Christmas being uh, not quite celebrated because they're not just there yet, but they're preparing. The town is preparing for Christmas, and you get another outstanding number. And we're going to kind of rapid fire through this because so much of this show is going to be spent talking about these musical numbers. That's really what makes this movie. Um, he sees this, and, and this is something that he's yearning for. You know that Jack wants more than what he has. He's sort of bored with Halloween, and now he gets enamored with this idea of Christmas. He goes back to Halloween Town. He explains to the townsfolk what he has found. Um, and that he would like to do Christmas this year. In the interim, we're introduced to Sally, who is sort of, for a lack of a better term, a Frankenstein character. She's been created in a lab, very similar to Jack in that she's a dreamer, she wants more, but she tends to be locked away, whereas Jack is more uh, front and center. So the whole town starts preparing for this idea that they're going to do Christmas, and uh, Sally just doesn't feel well about it, and she's trying to talk Jack out of it. But Jack is convinced he's going to put on this great Christmas celebration. He enlists the services of everybody throughout the town who's going to play a role, whether they're going to be musicians or they're going to help design the sleigh, or in Sally's case, uh, design his uh, Santa outfit. And then you get Lock, Shock, and Barrel, who we're introduced to who are the henchmen for the Oogie Boogie Man, who Jack wants nothing to do with. He wants nothing to do with Oogie uh, in, you know, having a hand in this Christmas celebration at all because he knows he's going to ruin it. But he gets them uh, to go and kidnap who he calls Sandy Claus rather than Santa Claus. Right. Uh, and the idea is we're going we're gonna to bring Santa here. We're going to explain to him that we're going to we're going to do it this year and we're going to give him the night off because this is what Jack wants. Jack wants something bigger. And of course, you know that these kids can't be trusted. So eventually, uh, they do get prepared for Christmas. Uh, Lock, Shock, and Barrel do kidnap Santa Claus after they uh, inadvertently kidnap the Easter Bunny first in actually a very funny scene. Um, so... Santa Claus, rather than just held to enjoy his day off, is brought to the Oogie Boogie Man. Uh, Oogie Boogie is a burlap sack character who works in the shadows. He's a compulsive gambler, and he's very upfront about, I'm going to kill you, I'm going to gamble with your life, but at the end of the day, I'm going to screw you. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to kill you. He's very blunt about it. 
and in that aspect becomes a very scary character. While all this is going on, Jack goes to Christmas Town and totally destroys the holiday inadvertently because you have to understand something. They're delivering toys made from Halloween Town. It's roadkill, it's dead rodents, it's snakes, it's possessed toys. It's not that Halloween Town went out of their way to ruin Christmas. They're presenting a Christmas that they know how to present. It's what they know to do. They see nothing wrong with it. So meanwhile, Jack thinks he's doing a great job. The military is called in. They shoot Jack down. Uh, While this is happening, back in Halloween Town, Sally goes to save Sandy Claus, but is also captured by Oogie. Um, Jack has that moment where he realizes exactly who he is and what he is, and as much as he wanted to do this Christmas thing, he is the Pumpkin King. He is not Santa Claus or Sandy Claus, as he says. And he says, I've got to go figure out a way to make this right. He wants to get back to Halloween Town, go back to being the Pumpkin King, but at the same time, help a Santa Claus get Christmas right. He wants to undo the wrong. So he goes back and he finds that Sandy Claus and Sally have been captured by Oogie Boogie. He goes to Oogie's lair. Um, A conflict ensues where Oogie loses a stitch. Jack tangles it in a fan. The burlap is torn apart. You find out that Oogie is filled with bugs. The bugs fall into a vat that Oogie would have used to kill Santa Claus and Sally. Oogie is then destroyed as the bugs fall in. Santa Claus goes back to fix Christmas, and Jack stays in Halloween Town to continue his role and his purpose as the Pumpkin King. And that, in very short order, is the premise of The Nightmare Before Christmas. It is a linear story, but it is a very, very good script. And it's just such a fun movie. I have to. I want to start off with this. Let me okay. ask you a question. Okay. I'm throwing your curveball. All right. Put aside the fact that we're doing this in October. Is this a Halloween movie or a Christmas movie? Oh, the great debate. Uh, it's both. Do we really have to pick? Let's. Uh, you don't have to because some people will watch this for both holidays. I don't. I only watch this for one holiday. Um, but if you had to pick. For you, is this Christmas or Halloween? Halloween. I would agree. You know, I I always watch this for Halloween. I never watch this movie as, at Christmas time. Which is why I'm inclined to say Halloween. Also because it takes place in Halloween Town. But the irony is, and I love that at the parks, it's just kind of all lumped together in one big thing. They started at Halloween you know, in Disneyland, they turn over the Haunted Mansion to Nightmare Before Christmas in October and leave it that way through December. Um, and then in World, they bring out Jack Skellington as part of Mickey's Very Merry, which is great, too. They bring out Sandy Claus, really. Yeah, so we we saw Jack as Sandy Claus last year at the first uh, for the first time because for the first time, we went to um, not so, or not, not, sorry, not, we didn't I go do to that not all so the time. I do it all the time. We went to Very Merry, not Not So Scary. Um, and it's great. I mean, if you've never gone before, like it is, it's so worth the money to do because you get characters you wouldn't normally see. You get a great parade. 
the marching soldiers within itself are worth it. But it's great because you don't really wait on lines. No. You spend more to actually. It's you a ticketed know, event. You so it's know, after the park closes. Right. So it's, but it's, it's an added so expense, worth it. But it's so worth it. And they give you cookies and hot chocolate and snacks and it's so good. Where you do wait online, ironically, are for the characters because you get all seven dwarves. You usually don't get that. You get Jack as Sandy Claus. You don't worth get it. Jack in Orlando. You know, so like yeah. it's that's where you're going to spend most of your time waiting on lines is for the characters rather than the attractions, but it's totally worth it. And he was so good. Like I fangirled pretty hard and I don't usually get like that around the characters. If you see a character in Disney, like I'll get a picture if I can, but I will never, ever wait online for a character. I waited for Jack probably for like a half hour 45 minutes, I'd there, say. But it was so worth it. it. He was so good. It was amazing. He was perfect. Like, he he had it down, and he gave you the time of day. Like, yeah. everybody got a lot of time with him. We that's, talked that's, to him for a while. That, that's that's where, why the wait took yeah. so long. It's not even because there were that many people on the line, but you actually got some FaceTime. And a, a, a lot of pictures. Yeah. We'll post some of those. Yeah, it was really cool. Um so that's, I mean, really, that's that's the film right there. And and it carries over. To me, it is a Halloween movie because, as you said, it opens in Halloween Town. These are Halloween characters. And I think it goes back to what we talked about last week with Hocus Pocus. It's what were you raised on? What were your traditions? My tradition was watch this on Halloween. And Christmas time, it was Home Alone, The Grinch, Rudolph, and the Santa Claus with Tim Allen. Right. You know, and even Jingle All the Way, you know, as, as you know, when that movie came out, as kind of dumb as it is. You put that cookie down I'm now. Terrible, man. But but it's <laughs> but it's it's fun. It's 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 another one of those movies where it's like Hocus Pocus, where it's like, this is not a good film, but it's a fun movie. Uh, no. No, that is not the same thing as Hocus Pocus. It it has Go back the, and listen to last week. No, no, episode. no. It has the cheesiness. It has the cheesiness and the hokiness. No. All right. We're going to agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger is not the same hoke as Hocus Pocus. No way. All right. Well, well, we'll agree to disagree on that one. You can go back and listen to last week's episode and my opinion of Hocus Pocus. Um, but we're not here to talk about Hocus Pocus again or turbo man <laughs> or christmas <laughs> um but we're here to talk about nightmare but it, it is funny though because so many people will either they'll not just say that it's it's both holidays some people argue strongly that it's a christmas movie well here's another case to make for it being halloween when i was a kid i thought it was a horror movie actually like I remember we didn't see this in theaters. We waited a while for it to come out on video before. I don't want to say that we weren't allowed to see it, but I think my mom thought it was a horror movie and she didn't want us to see it at first, which is kind of ridiculous in retrospect because it's an animated movie. Yeah, we we saw this. Uh, actually, we saw it on my birthday. Or right around my birthday. That's a good birthday. Um, at the Colmac Multiplex, which if you're from Long Island and you wanted your car stolen, you went to the Colmac <laughs> Multiplex. That's not a joke. The, for a time, the number one location for car theft on Long Island was the parking lot of the Colmac Multiplex. I know it's not a joke. I'm laughing because it's true. Yeah. What else am I supposed to do? Lock your car. <laughs> but that's where we went and saw it. And I remember during the original theatrical release, just 
I was completely blown away because this movie literally has everything going for it. Yeah. Everything. Mm -hmm. But we'll we'll, we'll keep talking about the script here before we move on to anything else. Um, Because I would be remiss if we didn't talk about how Jack Skellington has probably one of the best entrances in the history of cinema. Yes. And what's amazing is he hasn't spoken a word up to that point, but when he comes up out of that fountain, you know exactly who he is. It's it's amazing how much they were able to develop a character yes. before he even spoke. He commands respect and he's immediately likable. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know that he's sort of their leader in a sense. Um, But even, yeah, before he's really even spoken a word, you just kind of gravitate towards him. Mm -hmm. And the the animation is still, to me, still impressive. Oh, yeah. Still very impressive. And I think that's a lot of what drew me in. That's the thing is you get the visuals that draw you in. And once you're sucked in and they know they got a hold on you, you can't. You can't help yourself but just become completely absorbed in this universe that they've created. And I felt that it was so incredible, the idea that you would have a universe where each holiday had its own special place and they were just so like self-absorbed in it. Like It blew me away as a kid. Like What a great idea this was. I think that's why I immediately liked this movie. I was fascinated with the idea that each holiday had its own separate town and to a kid I feel like like that was just something like you almost kind of thought about it being organized like almost as a government like you truly believed it as a kid and maybe it just appeals to my OCD that it's broken down and organized in that kind of way but that's what really hooked me in from the jump was the idea that each holiday has its own special world yeah. and that there was no crossing over. And then once you are hooked into that idea, you've got this rebellious character that's looking for something more and he does break the rules and he does cross them over. And that's what makes Jack Skellington so incredibly relatable. I mean, I think at any time in anybody's life, like, haven't you wanted more? Haven't you wondered, you've like, what's behind the curtain? He's a very complex character in that way because he seemingly does have everything and he's respected in Halloween Town and he seems to truly enjoy his role there. And he obviously loves to scare, but still wants more. It's just not enough for him. And you know that right away when they say, great job, Jack. And he was like, yeah, just like last year mm. and the year before that and the year before that. So it actually it contrasts what you said because I think he enjoyed it for a time, but now he's so completely bored. True. You know, and, and, and that's, that's where he starts going, walking through the cemetery and we see Zero, his dog, and then they walk off into the woods and he has that monologue that he that he speaks out loud and sings and it's you could just tell that this is somebody that has everything but possesses absolutely nothing it it's just not good enough for him right and that's also reinforced with the color palettes in each town you have halloween which is done 
in black, white, and orange. There's really not much to it. It's very simple. It's very washed out except for the pumpkins. And then once he gets into the woods and he sees the rest of these holidays, everything else is in bright colors. You have the heart for Valentine's Day. It's bright. The Easter egg, obviously very bright. Uh, A shamrock, a turkey, everything else just pops. Right. And Jack Skellington is played by Chris Sarandon, who just does such a wonderful job with the character because he's so theatrical with him like you you feel like you're watching a stage performance but it doesn't come off as being too over the top right um and you you know some of you will know chris sarandon from fright night my movie at halloween other than the nightmare before christmas so it's kind of this like crashing of worlds and i absolutely love it uh some of you know him from child's play um and a lot of you know him from princess bride like he's had Mm. he's had quite a career yeah and um, he's, you know, opposite him is Catherine O'Hara, who plays Sally, who we all knew as Mrs. McAllister from Home Alone. She's had quite the career. I, I, not just Home Alone, in Beetlejuice, too. I mean, she's kind of a staple of our childhood as well. Right. And she was in the Burton Club. Yeah. 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 You know, it's like her, Danny Elfman, Paul Rubens, who those two are also in this, but Michael Keaton and Danny DeVito, who we've seen in Batman returns. And now we're seeing them again in Dumbo when that comes out next year. And big fish and big fish. Correct. So he has his stable of people that he goes to Catherine O'Hara as Sally does a really good job because I, I buy her as I I always assumed that Sally was, you know, obviously she was created in in a lab by the evil scientist and that's, that's his character name, evil scientist. Um, she's created by him, but I always got the impression that she was like an impressionable teenager, maybe like 17, 18 years old. I never got the feeling from her that she was a grown woman. I could agree with that. I wouldn't say impressionable, though. Um, I think she's kind of a rebel in her own right, because when we first meet her, she poisons the evil scientist who's sort of like her master like you do get this really uh frankenstein relationship between the two of them uh frankenstein and his monster um because he wants to control her he wants to keep her locked away so when we meet her she's feeding him dinner i I mean she is in the background of the scene of halloween town when they're you know when everybody's singing and you're kind of getting introduced to all the characters but back at the evil scientist home he's got her locked away so she makes him dinner and she poisons him because she wants to go out for the night right i i just always kind of got the feeling from her that she was another one yearning for more was very curious wanted to see what else was out there wanted to kind of spread her wings and and do something better than just be um a product of this scientist and sort of be his not his servant, but, you know, her role was just to kind of be around him all the time. And she wanted something different. And I think that's what drew her to Jack. Obviously, you could tell that she views Jack as a love interest. But you can tell on on a on a larger level, on a bigger scale, that she is attracted to Jack because they are so similar in personality. Right. And that idea is reinforced because later on, uh, she's locked away again after he figures out that he's been poisoned he locks her in a tower for all intents and purposes and she flings herself out the window and Sally is kind of 
you know, unlike Frankenstein's monster, she's not composed of dead body parts. She's kind of stitched together like a doll. And when she flings herself out this window, her arm breaks off and she sews it back together. So we know she can fix herself. She's not going to die because of this. But to me, it's just so interesting, that idea of like she's willing to break her own arm and put herself in harm's way to escape this guy just so that she can go out and and pursue what she wants. You know, she's kind of a rebel in her own right, and I like that about her. And I thought Catherine O'Hara did a nice job because, to circle back around to what I had said, you obviously know that this is a middle-aged woman because we've seen her in Home Alone, um, but she's able to sound so much younger than you know that sure. she is. Yeah. Because she only not only not she didn't only play Sally, she also voiced Shock. A lot of people don't know that. And Paul Rubens is um is Locke. Is Locke. Yeah. So uh and Danny Elfman was Barrel. Yeah. Um Danny Elfman also did the singing voice for Jack Skellington, which is amazing because he and Chris Sarandon sound so similar. Like I didn't know until a couple of years ago that Chris Sarandon didn't do the vocals for the musical numbers because it sounds so seamless. Yeah, it really really does. Um Danny Elfman is just, I, I mean, if you want to go down this road, because I could probably talk for an hour about Danny Elfman in and of itself, or himself, I should say. Uh, he's amazing. I mean, he is just so unbelievably talented. Uh, not just with the musical composition and the lyrics for this movie, but what's remarkable is that he was kind of making it up as he went along. Yeah. He didn't even have full scenes or the full script developed. And um, the way that this movie was put together was that Burton had had the idea for a while. He did not direct this, by the way. That's that's a big misconception is Burton did not actually direct this. It was his concept. It was his ideas and his characters. But it was directed by Henry Selick. Right. Because Burton at the time was directing Batman Returns. Right. And he didn't want to get locked into the stop motion animation. This movie took... Because it takes forever. I mean, this movie took two years to shoot. Three. Three years to shoot, but had been in development for for about a decade. Originally, they had talked about doing it as like a made-for-TV special. Right. In the same vein as one of those old Rudolph or, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town, those old claymation uh, television shows from the 60s that you still see every year on CBS. Which I believe is what did inspire this but uh they rented out the studio space i believe for three years and because the stop motion was taking so long they really had to in that last year make a huge push for the completion of the film so danny elfman didn't even have really all the pieces he needed and he would go back to tim burton and say all right well what's this scene going to be and he would just take that little information that he had and he would go compose and write these lyrics the the man is a musical genius and the amazing thing is that danny elfman will tell you this was the easiest project he ever worked on i know because he said he he related to jack skellington quick side note uh danny elfman did do like a mini residency at lincoln center that i got to see with my brother a couple years ago i think it was about three years ago at this point it is to this day the most whimsical night of my life he so embraces this movie. I mean, they played everything that you could want to see. Like they did Pee Wee's Big Adventure. They did. This was all live with an orchestra behind it. They did Big Fish. They did Beetlejuice. 
anything that you would want to see he performed but the best part about it was that at the end they did a whole bunch from nightmare like they brought out ingrid michelson to sing sally's song and then uh they brought out a couple of other singers to do this is halloween and then danny elfman did oogie boogie song but as both parts talking back and forth as oogie boogie and it's amazing now i've seen video of that but i've also seen and i think they they toured it last year it came to the barclay center but we didn't go um and I know they're doing like three or four nights at the Hollywood Bowl, which damn it, we miss we miss it by, by like a week. a week. By a week. By a week we miss it. Um But he's got Catherine O'Hara going out to perform yes. as Sally. Yeah. And he's got Ken Page coming out as Oogie Boogie. But Aww. he's had Ken Page like Ken Page went and did the Barclays Center show last year. Like I think he's been doing this for like the last year or two. Yeah. When I saw it, he did Oogie Boogie. Because they've been they touring this for Ken a while Page. now. Yeah. But but nightmare specific they've been touring. Right. If you get a chance, look into it. If it's coming to a theater near you, go see it. I have no affiliation with Danny Elfman, but it was just the most fun night. And if you love any any of these films, it's so worth it. Yeah, because remember, it's not just this, but you mentioned all those others. One of my favorite soundtracks to this day, I don't care how 80s it sounds, is the Batman soundtrack. Yeah. From the 89 Batman movie that Burton directed. And that soundtrack is basically Danny Elfman and Prince. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. If you haven't heard it, do yourself a favor and at least listen to it. Maybe it's on Amazon Music. I don't know. I'd have to look into it some more. Um, but this movie, before we before we really focus on the music, I, I do want to finish talking about everything else because we're going to sure. spend so much time on the music, um, which we should. The attention to detail in this movie is incredible. It's just like the little touches. Like when they have their town hall meeting and Jack is going over what Christmas town yeah. is and what the holiday is, like the podium is a coffin. You know, it was like little things like that that I didn't even catch on and I've been watching this movie for 25 years. I've seen it a hundred times. Little things like that sometimes you don't catch on or, you know, immediately but having rewatched it, little little things here and there that were just like, oh, that's so clever. Like it just yeah. makes so much sense that they would think to do that. Or even when they do start putting together their own Christmas, they do... Um like those Russian stacking dolls. Yes. It's just such an interesting touch that they threw in. Right, because they're sort of creepy on their own. Like you didn't really have to do much to them except they existed. Sure. I love, and you don't pick up on it as a kid, but you pick up on it as you get older. The mayor... I love how his that face wrote. He's mayor, two-faced. Yeah. It, it's it's awesome, and he's I'm an elected official. I can't make decisions on my own. <laughs> that was yeah. what he says to Jack. Like again, just a really creative, funny touch. Like they did such. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm I, I bear repeating myself, and usually it drives me crazy, but I'm gonna do it, and I don't care. This is just a really good movie from top to bottom. Yeah, really good. And I feel like we've, we've, what we haven't touched on is the contrast between Christmas and Halloween Mm. and how incredibly well it works in this movie. Yeah. Like it, in theory, this shouldn't work at all. Not at all. Because they are just so completely different. But I feel 
that it's tied together because of Jack Skellington. I definitely agree with you, but that's the thing you needed to polar opposites. I mean, think about it. When he goes into the forest and he has his choice of any of those trees, I mean, he falls into Christmas, literally falls. But anything else, you know, if he went into Valentine's Day or Easter, Christmas is the most stark contrast to Halloween. And that's what makes this so perfect. It's almost like, you know, we we touched on the color palette a little bit, but that's just the tip of the iceberg with this. When What I think makes this movie work so well is, like, think about what you're doing. Think about how you would ever explain Christmas. I mean, when you take the religious aspects out of it, it's absurd. You're talking about a man coming into your house in the middle of the night, down your chimney, and delivering presents. The idea is ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And that's what he stumbles upon. And what I love so much about this movie, it's almost like you're deconstructing the Grinch. Like with the Grinch, you have to convince him to embrace the spirit of Christmas and what it means and, you know, what it means to the families and and to love. And in this case, Jack believes it before he's experienced everything. This isn't a case of seeing is believing. He just buys into everything, which is a wonderful concept. Where those two movies are so similar is that they have heart. At the end of the day, the Grinch has heart. Three sizes. Yeah, but this movie, we talked before about how chaos ensues when Halloween's version of Christmas is released in Christmastown. But it was not done with any malice. Right. They tried so hard to give them a great Christmas. And they believed that they were doing good because that's what they know how to do. And that's that's what I'm saying is that he bought right into it. He believed it and didn't really know the reason why. I mean, after he sees Christmas, he goes back to the lab and he starts making all these equations and doing these experiments and he tries to analyze Christmas even though he understands it's more about a feeling than anything else. Right. And they do try to make it their own and it fails miserably. Yeah. Um, But through no fault of their own, it's just, it, it goes back to that contrast. But you almost feel bad for them. Like, you're watching what they're doing and you're like, this is going to go terribly. It's almost funny, but in a way, you feel bad for them because they're so excited. They're so proud of what they're about to do, but they have no idea the mayhem that they're about to unleash inadvertently. Right. But in a way, it kind of is their own spirit of Christmas. They're doing it the way that they know how because they just want to participate in the celebration. And I think that's kind of what the point of the movie is, is to get in that spirit. Yes. And we start, as we mentioned, on Halloween. And the first big song that we get here is This is Halloween, which is a really nice way to start the movie. It's it's, it's the perfect way to start the movie. It, it sets the entire tone. It sets the entire movie up. And 
it does that that wonderful job we talked about it before before of developing these characters and you know right away exactly who these characters are i mean this song there are a handful of songs that i can point to and say this about but i think this this song has become iconic yeah it's probably for me at least it's my opinion this is the second most iconic song in this movie yeah yeah, it's not my favorite, but for the opener, for the establishing number, it's perfect. It it sets everything up that you need to know, that everybody is gung-ho for Halloween in this town. They all want to scare. Um, and it's just cool that they had like every facet of horror in this. You know, they have witches, they have vampires, they have ghosts clowns and snakes yes the clowns too yeah like everything that you'd want to see or everything that's ever scared you as a child they have and and they're not really scary though they're just like interesting they're creepy looking yeah i think that there's intrigue there like i was not Mm -hmm. i wasn't scared of them as a kid but i found them to be intriguing like i was so curious about them that's the perfect word for it yeah right and it's like you almost shouldn't like it because you know that they're supposed to be scary. Right. But you're still drawn into them. Sure. And I think that that has to do with the outstanding visuals, you know, in partnership with this wonderful music that we have. Yeah. Um, Jack's Lament is an outstanding monologue. You, yeah. Uh, we, we talked about knowing exactly who Jack was when he comes out of that fountain. And you do know exactly who he is. But... To have him open up the way that he does, iconic. With that scene, he's walking down that hill as it un- as it unravels that twisted hill and lowers him into the cemetery. Mm-hmm. It was on every poster. The trailer? It's in the trailer. It's on the cover to the VHS and now the DVD and the Blu-ray. And that scene has been played over and over and over again. It's probably the most memorable part of the home movie. I, I mean, it, it it's the shot. It's the money it's shot. A, this is this is the chandelier in Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. This is the moon shot in E.T. It's the boulder in Indiana Jones. It, it that is exactly what this is. Yeah. The entire film rests on that scene. Yeah. Without question. Without question. The most iconic song of this movie is what's this absolutely when he falls through the door and what i love so much about this song is the curiosity mm. the inquisition and the innocence of it because it's it's almost it's almost a a childhood innocence because jack is a grown man though he's never seen this before right the lyrics are so, so clever. And you're right. It does capture the innocence and the childlike quality, but it is so darn catchy. And this is where you do make the argument that it's a Christmas movie. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the side that I agree with. I've already taken a side and I will be staunch on it is a Halloween movie. But when I think about what's this, uh, they did incorporate it in the parks with the Osborne light show. And I remember 
sadly, it was the last Osborne Light show because it's no longer there at MGM. Uh, I remember just sitting there watching it being in complete awe. I mean, it, it's beautiful to begin with what they do with the park at that time of year. But synced up to that song to have the lights flash it like you feel like jack in that moment where you're just sucked into christmas and can you ever hear this song without singing it no no absolutely not (laughs) i can't even say what's this without thinking about the whole song yeah yeah yeah. what um i i always appreciated how funny this song is at the same time because it when he talks about the difference between what he's seeing there versus what he's seeing when he's in Halloween town, you know, the, the, the children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads, you know, it's, it's the monsters so are all missing and the nightmares can't be found. found. Yeah. Right. And absolutely no one's dead. It's just, yes. it's so funny. Like it's, it's very tongue in cheek, but it's done in such a tasteful manner that you're not taken out of the song. And you still take it seriously as an outstanding moment in the movie. Right. And what's so interesting, too, is the way that he's going through Christmas Town at this point and what is coming out of his mouth and what's on the screen. You know, he's saying these things and he's looking at a Christmas tree. He's looking at stockings hung by a fire. He's, you know, peeking under the children's beds and everything. But it it's... It it's just so well done the way that everything lines up and what he is saying has nothing to do with the magic that he's seeing. It it's just so ironic the whole number. Mm-hmm. Uh, his town hall meeting um, when they have that song where he explains to them what Christmas is again very funny because they're sort of jumping the gun and they're asking about these horrible things and he's kind of like trying to keep them at bay, but even he concedes. You know, he gets to the point where he says, he's like, I might as well give them what they want. Right. And he almost draws Santa Claus up to be this horrible monster just because they're already interested and he's trying to keep them hooked. Right. Because he wants them to go along with this. He is a monster, though. He's breaking into your home in the middle of the night. We're going to have a whole conversation about this another day. I can't get into that. We've already gone on for 46 minutes. We'll go on for another hour in 46 minutes. We got to start talking about this. But that's what I'm saying. It is an absurd concept to explain. And because they're, for lack of a better better word, evil, they're used to, you know, they don't do things with malice, but it's Halloween. It's supposed to be about pranks and, and mischief and all of those things. They go right to villainizing Santa Claus. Yeah. And then we kidnap the Sandy Claus. <sighs> it's really a toss-up between this and what's this is my favorite number. I love Lock, Shock, and Barrel. I think this is just such a fun number. You mean you like the villains? <laughs> <laughs> well, we haven't even circled around to Oogie Boogie oh, yet. <laughs> believe me, we're going to spend a, a, an ample amount of time talking about that song and that character. But... Very similar to the other songs that we've talked about, this one you can immediate, uh, immediately associate with this film. And what, what it does such a wonderful job of is really carving into how twisted and diabolical Lock, Shock, and Barrel are. Because you know very little about them up until this point in time. 
Right. And what I love about this number is it's so cartoony. I mean, when you listen to the lyrics, it's kidnap the Sandy Claws, lock him in a box, bury him for 90 years, then see if he talks. They're diabolical. Not even diabolical. They're sociopaths. Yeah, they're really bad kids. <laughs> I mean, in in short, they're just really bad kids. But the things that they come up with like that, um, and I think they talk about beating him with a stick. Like, yeah. they're they're just they are aside from Oogie. For me, growing up, him aside, they were the scariest characters in this movie. Yeah, because they weren't like naughty kids. They were like. The creepy kids. I, I'm not going to say they were like shining creepy kids, but they're, they're up there. Yeah, they were pretty close. Um, making Christmas. Oh, oh, hold on, hold on. We we got to go back to Kidnap the Santa Claus because there is a hidden Mickey in that song, which may be up for debate. But There is no debate. Uh, there no. There is no hidden Mickey. Lock, shock, and barrel, they shoot out of a tunnel, and the tunnel, it's supposed to look like a scary face, but... It looks like an open mouth and where the nostrils are, they have like those big spirals that Burton draws and they look like Mickey ears. It's a hidden Mickey. And you you live in the world where it's a hidden Mickey. I don't think that it is at all. Um, But let me get back to where I was. I was making Christmas. (laughs) Um, It's it's another song that does a nice job of playing both sides and the things that they're doing and the things that they're saying more so the things that they're doing because that shows more in the visuals than it does in the lyrics but it is such a stark contrast from what you should be doing at Christmas time in terms of the wonderful peaceful and lovely gifts you should be getting and they're they're handing over these just disgusting and horrifying things that the the parody between the two is brilliant and it is so funny but bigger picture i love the way the town just rallies around each other i mean granted they are ruining christmas it's still in the spirit of christmas they are banding together to make this holiday happen Mm -hmm. and uh the next song is another song that is completely iconic i don't believe it's as iconic as the other two that I mentioned. For me, this is Halloween and what's this? This is close, though. And that's the Oogie Boogie song. I love this Cam Calloway, um, jazzy, yeah. bluesy you know, sound. And what I love so much about this is that... Or, I'm sorry, it's Cab Calloway, not Cam Calloway. My apologies. Um, who a lot of you would know from the Blues Brothers. Um, what I love about this is he doesn't take Santa Claus seriously at all. He, he, this entire song is Oogie Boogie basically making fun of Santa Claus. Right. I love the song, but I love the character too. I love that they make him a gambler. I think that's such an interesting trait to give him. And he's got that whole Disney villain pastiche. He's got like a little flamboyance about him. Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this earlier. He is an underrated villain in the scope of the Disney universe, though he's not sort of your traditional 
Disney villain in that he is exactly what he is. He's unapologetic about it, and and he doesn't try to hide it, and he doesn't try to fool anybody. He's upfront about, I gamble, but I cheat. You're gonna die. I'm gonna have fun. Right. Which actually makes him probably one of the most horrible Disney villains of all time. I don't know that he's recognized so much in the Disney universe as one of the top villains, but the way that this movie is embraced as such a cult classic, I think Oogie Boogie is very, very popular in that regard. It's interesting that you say that because some of the posters and and some of the promo work that you see for this movie says Disney presents Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. And then other uh, promotional items leave Disney out of it altogether and just say Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. This was not released under the Disney banner. This was another one released under Touchstone. Originally, it was supposed to be released under Walt Disney Pictures. But they felt that the the film would be too dark and too scary for kids. So they went under Touchstone. But make no mistake about it. Everything else about this movie was Disney. Oh, yeah. Right from, I mean, granted, you know, like we said, Burton was not working for them at the time. But at one point he did. And I think he started conceptualizing this while he was working with them. They just shelved it. Uh, this and Frankenweenie, I believe. Because he did do a Frankenweenie short before they turned it into the feature. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why they butt heads so much is because he did have all the ideas, but they weren't getting greenlit. And the last song that Jack sings, um, I can't remember if it's just another monologue that has a name that escapes me or if it's a part of poor Jack. Admittedly, I cannot remember. But it's the scene where he's in the cemetery and he's been shot down. He Mm. and Zero have been shot down and he's sort of flung over that angel and that angel is holding him and uh, it's a headstone in the cemetery and he has this coming of age moment for a lack of better terms where at first he's he's so upset and he's what have I done what have I done he realized that he's failed and he's realized that he's done something horrendous but it's almost like something turns on him and he goes but I did my best and they're going to remember this forever and I am the pumpkin king and I can't wait till next Halloween. And he totally comes full circle. Mm. It's a very strong moment for the character and for the picture. It's really interesting too that they use like a religious iconography in that part because everything else that they're doing with the holidays, it takes religion out of it. And to have the angel is a little jarring for me. Oh, so you don't like that. I like the moment. I like the, you know, the aha moment for the character. I'm not saying I don't like the angel. I just, it it does take you out of it a little bit because it's not really in the spirit of what the rest of the film was. The question that you ask yourself at this point is, does this movie hold up? We ask this Every week, there are a handful of things that we'll always circle back to. And one of those things that we always circle back to is, does the film hold up? And I think that that answer is so obvious. A thousand and fifty percent. 
what's amazing to me about this movie is that it does continue to cycle back around it's it's something that's on uh, Freeform, which used to be the Family Channel, and then was ABC Family, and now it's Freeform. But they do their twenty, what are they, the thirty one days of Halloween, mm-hmm. right? I think it started as like thirteen, and now it's it just the whole month 13, celebration. Now it's the whole month, and this is always there. And then I think they do it again for the twenty five days of Christmas, or the twelve days of Christmas, or whatever days of Christmas they do. Um, this film is always on television, and I hate to say it because. I'm not one of them. And let's be clear about something. I liked this movie before it was cool to like this movie. Right. And I liked this movie before, as I'm going to call them, the hot topic generation got their hands yes. on it. But this film stays relevant because specifically of the hot topic generation. You go into a hot topic anywhere in the country, I guarantee doesn't matter whether it's Halloween or Christmas or Easter or the 4th of July, you're going to find Jack and Sally somewhere. Well, that's Blink-182's fault. How is that Blink-182's fault? It's the lyric in their song, we can live like Jack and Sally if we want. Okay. Yeah. That's what did it. But that That's what did it. You're, you're going to credit all that to a lyric in a Blink-182 song? For the Hot Topic generation? Yeah, a thousand percent. Absolutely. Well, maybe. Um, but I, I think it holds up, you know, we talked about it before is that they keep finding new ways to incorporate this into the park, um, especially Disneyland that now that's, we're talking about a three month extension that they completely overturn Haunted Mansion to be Nightmare Before Christmas from Halloween to Christmas. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. But even, you know, what you said about the Hot Topic generation, it's not just the parks where this movie is still alive. They did, and granted, it's a couple years older now, they did do Nightmare Revisited where they had all of these newer bands uh, cover some of these classic songs. Like they had Fall Out Boy cover What's This. They had Marilyn Manson do This Is Halloween. Uh, And they had my favorite, and we didn't really get to talk about this, Fiona Apple cover Sally song. I think Fiona Apple covering this song, she gave it so much of like a slower, more mysterious quality. I actually think it's better than it is in the film. I hate this CD. Humbug. I can't stand this CD. Why? Because I don't... First off, I'm not a big fan of covers to begin with. If I'm going to hear you perform, perform one of your own songs. I am not somebody that rushes out and buys these albums where you have a, 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 an assortment of artists covering songs that are not theirs. Call me a purist. I like originals. Covers to me, I'm not a big fan. But Disney has done this for years and years and years. They have released CDs with almost every like tween pop tart covering princess songs. And I've bought none of them. I don't expect you to. But this is kind of the same vein. I mean, I think before we saw like this big resurgence of Nightmare Before Christmas, this is what kind of started it was where where they covered it with all these songs. Well, listen, Marilyn Manson, the All-American Rejects, Corn, the Plain White Tees, Flyleaf. I have too good a relationship with my parents to listen to any of these artists. <laughs> So I can't relate to this. 
I don't like any of these artists. I certainly don't like any of their music. That's right. They've done it twice because, yeah, you have the Amy Lee Sally song and I forgot about all American Rejects covering it. No, and uh, you're right. Marilyn Manson has no business in the Disney universe. No. But so you, so you're taking you're taking an album that I love, the original soundtrack. You're covering it. I'm not happy about it. Call me an old fogey. That's fine. And then you're giving me these artists who I can't stand to do it. So, no. I ha- th- this this has no place on my shelf. I think it's a fun way to make it a little bit more current by having you know, some some of these more recent bands come out and cover these songs. I mean, hey, look, if you if 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 you like covers, this might be for you. If you like any of these artists, go hug your mother. You she you probably haven't done it in a while, and and then you're probably gonna like this soundtrack. I no, I completely disagree with you. I think. I mean, maybe you don't agree that these songs needed to be remade. They they didn't. They didn't necessarily need to be made current but if I'm one of these bands and I have the stature and Disney comes to me and is like hey do you want to do a cover this song a thousand percent look at what we just talked about with the Muppets a couple of weeks ago Dave Grohl plays Animal in the Muppets if I'm Dave Grohl and I've had all these accomplishments in my career and Disney comes knocking on my door you bet I'm gonna do it why wouldn't you not to mention Fiona Apple hadn't done anything when the CD came out, I would absolutely, you know, do the cover. Well, I'm glad you enjoy it. I do. This is what this is what I am listening to at this time of year. That's why you have your own car. <laughs> you can enjoy it in your vehicle. I I have listened to this a number of times. I just it's not for me. I can't get into it. What can I tell you? I don't like it. But some of you, hey, listen, this this might be for you, and and hopefully we've introduced you to something that you'll enjoy. I mean, that's kind of the point of all this is if you've seen these movies, hopefully you can relate. If you haven't seen these movies, maybe we turn you on to the idea of seeing something. If you do like the remakes, please hit us up on Twitter and let us know what you think of the remade soundtrack. Yeah, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, whatever it is, you know, hey, we're, we're always looking to, to talk to you guys. You can find us on there. Um, and help us settle d- the debate. Give us your input on whether it is a Halloween or Christmas movie. Yes, absolutely. News for the week. Very interesting news dropping today. I think it's official that you will not see James Gunn return to Guardians of the Galaxy because he has now signed on to write and direct the sequel to Suicide Squad. So he has left the MCU altogether and has jumped to DC, which is a company that desperately needs a James Gunn right now. Well, unfortunately, I think if uh, we're not going to see James Gunn return for Guardians, I fear that we're also not going to see Chris Pratt or Zoe Saldana, or we're definitely not going to see Dave Bautista come back. Right. Uh Maybe Bradley Cooper and Vin Diesel. I don't know. But um, they were all pretty firm in standing behind James Gunn and that he was wronged. So it'll be interesting to see if if they're going to continue to do that now that he seems to officially be parting ways with the uh, MCU. Well, if if 
you've seen the Avengers Infinity Wars, and if you haven't, we won't completely give it away, but if what we saw is what we believe happened, no. then at least Zoe Zaldana would not be in a Guardians movie in the near future anyway, so it's very easy to write her out of this. True, but you've also eliminated, you know, flashbacks or prequels or however they're going to do it. The actress does not want to come back. She doesn't want to be a part of this. Right. They, you know, they signed a petition for James Gunn, which, you know, we'll, we can post, um, we'll dig it up. It came out a while ago where the actors, you know, felt that it was the wrong move to fire him for comments that he made. It, it, you know, and if you're not sure what we're talking about, uh, James Gunn had tweeted, and this was years ago, I believe, before before he was writing Correct. Uh, for Guardians. He had tweeted some off-color comments and they decided to punish him for it now. And the thing is, he was upfront with them about this when they hired yes. him. He told them mm-hmm. he had deleted the tweets, but right. he knew that there were screen grabs out there and he they he made them fully aware. Hey, look, I have this in my past. Right. And they didn't seem to care about it then, but they they obviously have made a decision whether you agree with it or not to punish him for it now. Um you have a cast that is um an eclectic group in terms of their backgrounds um, and their heritage um, and obviously their gender sure, uh, that are opting to stand behind James Gunn. Whether you agree with them or not, that's up to you. We're not going to comment on it and we're not going to tell you how to feel about it. Um, they're willing to stand behind him. Disney obviously is not willing to take that chance. So it really does send a shockwave, I think, through the MCU at this time, especially because with the Avengers trilogy having just ended the original trilogy, you're now going to get at least another trilogy because we have Captain Marvel coming out. I And, and they still have the third Guardians movie, which isn't done. They haven't even started it yet. It's really going to cause a big shakeup at a time where it couldn't come any worse for them to have a shakeup. Well, it was a shot across the nose. He could have gone on to write for anything that would have hired him at this time, but he went to DC. That's a shot across the nose, and I don't disagree with it. No, if he if he feels that that they were unfair to him because he was upfront about all of this and they punished him for it years down the line anyway... Yeah, I I can't uh, blame him for being salty about it at all. And, you know, I I think that 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 movie, that Suicide Squad movie, tried very hard to be a Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm. And um, now you got the guy that did Guardians of the Galaxy to to do this. And I think he's going to make a really good movie. Yeah, I'm I'm sad that we lost it. I mean, obviously we're Disney fans, but that doesn't mean that we're loyal to Marvel I'm still obviously going to go see it. I still see all of, D- you know, what DC puts out as well. But um, I'm sad that we lost him on this trilogy because I love Guardians. I don't think it's going to be the same. No, especially because now you've got to seriously consider about recasting. Yeah. Which time will only tell. I mean, the other thing, too, is uh, hey, I don't know these people from Adam, but they got a twenty five dollar or twenty five million dollar paycheck sitting on the table 
you really that loyal to James Gunn? Mm. I guess we're going to find out. I mean, I don't know. I mean, they, they were also contracted to do a certain amount of movies. I would imagine that they have to honor the contracts. Sure. Well, in time, we're going to figure it out. Hey, you know, we mentioned it last week, um, but if you know anybody that is a Disney fan or a movie fan or loves or likes any of the movies that we've talked about, please, we would love to you, uh, love for you to share this show with them and and to to expose them to that. We'd love to hear from you guys. Of course, we love hearing uh, from our new audience members, and we got audience members literally across the globe right now, which is like, it's such a surreal thing when we're able to see where our downloads are coming from. I mean, we've got our listeners in the U.S., of course, but we also would be remiss if we didn't thank our listeners in Canada, the U.K., Sweden, Switzerland, Australia, Japan, Japan. and uh, recently India. Yeah. So for, for those of you, thank you. We appreciate it. Um, we're happy to have you here. We're happy to give you content every week. You, we hope you're enjoying the show. As I said, please help spread the word. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram and on Twitter. We want to interact with you. We want to hear from you. And uh, we can't wait to come back next week and continue our Halloween marathon. So for Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone. On behalf of Monoreal Radio, we'd like to thank you for joining us. We'll see you at the movies, the stuff dreams are made of.